Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. Chuck, say hi. Hi. Welcome, people. This is uh, Stuff You Should Know. Indeed. Chuck's got his um, little jug of vodka. I got my Fresca, and we are ready to go. Right, Chuck? No, I don't drink vodka. Liar, Chuck. Chuck, do you know how uh, we have these web logs now? There's like a Stuff You Should Know web log. A.K.A. blog, yeah. Sure, yeah. If you want to be all hip or whatever. I do know how we have that because I write on it every day. I know. I was just starting a conversation. <laughs> Chuck, lay off, will you? Sorry. Um, remember that post I put up yesterday that you said like you read three times and still couldn't make heads or tails of? Uh, yeah, I didn't get it. <laughs> well, there was a, there was a part of it, uh, kind of the crux of the whole thing. I don't know if that's the case or not, but anyway, there's an aspect of it, and it was about these um, these two artists, uh-huh. and um, the, well, one of them just goes by the name Arakawa, okay, right, and uh, his partner, and I don't think just artistic partner, I think I think that they're life partners, maybe. Gotcha. Uh, her name is uh, Madeline uh, Gins, right? Okay, and they have been quite successful at creating this architecture um, that's intended to achieve immortality, right? How so? Well, the way these two have done it is um, by through surprising, disturbing architectural choices, right? Okay. Basically, their theory is that if you create or, or if you live in an uncomfortable dwelling, mm-hmm. um, discomfort or comfort leads to laziness and sedentariness, and then that's ultimately what kills you. Wholly unproven. Okay. But they design their architecture based on that theory. So they keep you uncomfortable. Right. And uh, it's unfamiliar. I think I know this. I think we actually have an article on this. Like the floors are... Uh, undulating? Undulating sure. floors. And uh, yeah, I've heard of that. Uh, they, they also like um, kind of moonscape floors. Right. Um, angled like ceilings. That just it, it doesn't sound like a very pleasant place to live. Yeah, pretty interesting though. Uh, this one guy, and these things go for... They're, they're just to build them, they cost millions of dollars. Right. But they have built several. Most of them are lofts in, in uh, Tokyo. Uh-huh. And this one guy who lives in one with his family said that he's lost like 20 pounds and doesn't have hay fever any longer really? since he moved in there. Yeah. Wow. Um, but their 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 whole uh, firm is basically in jeopardy because they were heavily invested with one Bernard Madoff, who you may, may have heard of. Ah, uh, yes. This guy's reach extends everywhere. We're talking Kevin Bacon, uh-huh. right? And yeah. there's a Six Degrees joke in there somewhere. Sure. Um, I imagine Kira Sedgwick, since Kevin Bacon's in there. Right. Zsa Zsa Gabor. Yeah. Spielberg. Spielberg. And that's just like the tip of the iceberg. Right. I mean, thousands and thousands of people were invested with this guy. And it turned out he was a Ponzi schemer. That's right. It's a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, Chuck likes to say it like that in a tribute to the Italian immigrant uh, Mr. Charles Ponzi. Uh-huh. Uh, who was running around in the 20s. And yep, the actually, 1920s. yeah, you want to talk a little bit about... Uh, Mr. Ponzi? Yeah, I didn't know this until I read the article. It's pretty interesting. And, you know, Ponzi's all over the news, so it's kind of cool to get some background. Yeah. Oh, and also we should probably say thanks to all the people who wrote in and requested that we do this podcast. Right. This one's for you. Right. Bernie Madoff, Madoff excuse me, himself wrote in. Yeah, he did. He's like, hey, can you tell everybody what right. I did? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, in the 1920s, uh, Charles Ponzi, uh, what he did was, at the time, there was, if you want to send mail overseas... Uh, you would include uh, what was called an international reply coupon. Well, if you wanted to reply. Right. right. But it's, it's basically sort of like uh, 
when you get something from you know a magazine and the postage is prepaid to return sure. the card, you know, right? It's it's prepaid so that you get that back to say, hey, these people got that exactly, right? So this is what you did back then. Uh, he had an idea. He said, hey, if I go over and buy these in a different country where they're cheaper, mm-hmm. I can come back and sell them in the United States. Right, and he could do this because these things were internationally recognized. They were the same in any country, exactly. but apparently they went for different prices in different countries. Right. So it's not a bad business model, right? Right, I would say so. Right. Uh, and things went pretty well at first. He got a lot of investors and made some pretty good money. Mm-hmm. But the return that he promised, which, what was it again? It was a ridiculous promise. It was, I think, 50% return in 45 to 90 days. Right. So, yeah. It, th- that should have been a red flag right exactly. there. We'll talk about that later. But, uh, yeah, that didn't go as well as he thought. Um, but he kept getting investors, and he just kind of kept this all quiet. So what he would do is he would pay back some to the initial investors based on the money that the uh, current investors were giving him and just kind of kept going in a, a cyclical way until – he had a lot of. He started, you know, taking a little money for himself too. <laughs> yeah, and uh, ended up having, you know, millions of bucks off this in the 1920s before yeah. it finally crumbled um, as a big scam. Well, the, the reason he was found out was because somebody apparently calculated that um, there would have had to have been about 160 million of these things right. extant for him to be making the money he was making. Right. And the problem is, is there was only 27,000. Exactly. So that's, that's kind of what found him out. But what I got from this, what I got from reading about Ponzi schemes is that um, Charles Ponzi didn't appear to be a, a, a huckster from the outset. Like he, This right. is actually a legitimate business that he was trying to run. He kind of fell into was, it, I think. Sure. I think it was an act of desperation. Right. Um, and well, we should probably talk about exactly how Ponzi schemes work, right? Right. They're pretty straightforward and simple, but sure. I can't imagine that as they just get bigger and bigger, you start to uh, eat a lot of Rolades. Right. I bet uh, the, that was the original Ponzi scheme, and I'm sure he was nervous as uh, it was going. Always, how's it go? What kind of scheme? A Ponzi scheme. Very nice, Chuck. Thanks. So do you want to give some detailed explanation on how Ponzi schemes work? Yeah, it's actually pretty simple. Okay. Uh, what you do is you... Um, you come up with a investment, a shell sort of, that, sure. and you get people to invest in your in whatever you're saying you're going to invest in. Right. In this case, in, in the original Ponzi scheme, it was these uh, reply coupons, but nowadays it's usually like a, a stock thing. So you get these folks to invest, and you take their money and essentially uh, use that first rung of people to attract other people to invest. And once you start getting other investors, you can pay back those initial folks, right. and they can go on record and say, oh, yeah, you know, I made a great return. That's exactly right. And then and that, that leads builds to even that. more investors, right? Yep, and more rungs, and you just kind of, it's sort of like robbing Peter to pay Paul sure. the entire time. Right. Uh, but you're pocketing, like Ponzi did, some for himself, right? Right. At a certain point, you can start skimming off the top. Right. And But it's not like a take the money and run proposition. It's a take of the money, stick around, and pay people off as much as you can. Right. The problem is, is to, like, people don't divest very easily when they they get a better, an unbelievable return on something. Right. They want to keep investing. Sure. So if you're like, no, no, you can't invest anymore. Uh, the people are going to start to get suspicious. So right. you've got your first rung, you've got your second rung, and then so on and so on and so on. But to sustain it, you have to keep adding more and more rungs. But the more rungs you add, the more difficult it is to pay everybody back. Right. So Although, it's inevitable that yeah, it collapses. Sure. But uh, some people will know they're investing in a Ponzi scheme, some of those first rung people. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I, from what I understand, 
people can actually make money off Ponzi schemes oh, if sure. you get in early enough and you're smart enough to get out while the getting's good. Right, because those are the people that are going to get paid first so they can vouch and say this is a really great deal. Right, exactly. So, yeah, sure. Yeah, so the whole that that's pretty much a Ponzi scheme. And if it sounds a lot like a pyramid scheme to you, you would be right. Uh, it's virtually the same structure. The one big difference is is that in a Ponzi scheme, you're not asked to do anything. Right. You're just an investor. They just want your money. Uh, in a pyramid scheme, generally, you have to do something like you are buying in uh, to sell something. Amway. No, sorry. Well, no, actually, um, on Amway's site, they have, uh, a, like on the FAQ section, it's like, is Amway a pyramid scheme? Right. And they're like, we're a pyramid model. Scheme's the wrong word to use. Exactly. And actually, the pyramid model has worked for legitimate businesses. Amway, yeah. Mary Kay, Mary Kay Avon, mm-hmm. um I, Pampered or, Chef. Pampered Chef. That's another one. So, yeah. So, I mean, it, it can work, and it doesn't necessarily have to be illegal. The, that, that's the other distinction between Ponzi schemes and um, pyramids right. models is that Ponzi schemes are always fraud. Completely false. Because it's an investment, mm-hmm. but the money's never invested. Right. So, uh, it's what, so simple. When I read this, I was just like, God. I know. It's, it's, the beauty is in its simplicity. Just well, like, give me a bunch of money, and I will keep it. And get more people to give me money. Right. I'll give you a little bit. Yeah. And it's just amazing how that works out. Can you out. imagine being such an edgy, savvy investor that you actually knowingly invest in Ponzi schemes? Yeah. Who does that? I don't know. I bet there's some names on the uh, on the Madoff list. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, but no, he did everything alone. We'll get to him in a minute. Allegedly. He, no, not anymore. In- he confessed, buddy. Well, we're, certain things are still alleged at this point. All right. Well, we'll just go with it. You're such a COA, <laughs> dude. But I appreciate the O because that includes me. Okay. Um, so Ponzi wasn't the guy who came up with the scheme. He he did it so well that it, they named it after him. Sure. But uh, the earliest one we know about goes back to uh, 1880, early 1880s in Boston with a woman named Sarah Howe. I don't think I know about this one. Okay. So she actually actively and purposefully built a Ponzi scheme. Right. Although, you know, what with it being 40 years before Charles Ponzi showed up, she probably didn't call it that to herself. What was her name? How? Sarah Howe. The Howe scheme. Yes. If she were, if she did have enough foresight to know that it would eventually be called a Ponzi scheme, how would it sound in her head when she said, this is the kind of scheme that I'm carrying out? It's a Ponzi scheme. That's right, Chuck. <laughs> um, anyway, M- Ms. Howe, basically put together a um, a group of thousands of women investors and uh, invested in women's um, women's liberty bonds, I think is what they were called. Uh, that's supposedly what the investment was for, but no, it, it wasn't. She just basically carried out a Ponzi scheme. Right. Um, and she managed to rake in about half a million bucks before she was uh, caught. Uh, and then another guy shortly after, about the turn of the century... Uh, his name was William Franklin Miller, and he also bilked investors for about another half a million. And this is, you know, substantial enough to be remembered a hundred years oh, plus yeah. later. But Ponzi was the first one, right? Right? Or Ponzi was the first big one, I should say. Sure. Uh, and then you don't really hear about anybody in in the world of Ponzi schemes. I mean, I'm sure you can, but nobody huge doing it right now. Right. Well, or, except- until. Lou Pearlman? Is that where you're going? I was going to go to the Balkans first, but let's do Mr. Pearlman. Okay. Yeah, this is one of my favorites, just because his associations are kind of funny. Uh, Lou Pearlman, who I think you have to say his name like Lou Pearlman. That's how I I got that impression as well. And he kind of looks like that kind of guy, too. Yeah. He was uh, 
he kind of funded the boy band craze in the 90s. I know you remember yeah. the Backstreet Boys because of the tattoo you have on your neck. Quite. And uh, NSYNC was the other one. I don't know if you have a tattoo of NSYNC. I do. Okay. I was covering all my bases. Uh, so he funded these bands, uh, and it turned out in uh, 2006 that he was running a big Ponzi scheme. He had been for like 20 years. Right. And a lot, you know, NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys were kind of funded on this Ponzi scheme. So. I don't think funded, kind of at all. I think they were fully funded. Fully funded. Right. Yeah. And this, this guy created the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC right. and funded them with illegal money. So those yahoos kind of owe pon- the Ponzi. With their careers. <laughs> yes, they do. I think so. Yeah, well, their careers, past tense. Right. Sure. sure. Um, Timberlake's done well for himself. Was he in one of those? Who? Uh, JT. I don't know who that is. <laughs> Shut up. Um, All right, so, back to Albania? Uh, yes, Albania. Uh, basically, a, a whole bunch of people were working this big Ponzi scheme, which from what I understand also uh, w- can extend the life of a Ponzi scheme. Uh, Lou Pearlman is an unusual animal. Uh, in that he could carry it out single-handedly for 20 years. Right. Um, but in, in Albania, for a while, a group of Ponzi schemers um, had one set up that bilked p- the, these investors out of $2 billion yeah. uh, before it collapsed. Which is, in Albania, that is 30% of their gross domestic product. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. Like, how to cripple a country, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I think Albania is probably second world. Um, so I think a, a hit like that is just ginormous. And that was a big problem when it happened. It was because when people found out, they started rioting in the streets and fires broke out. Right. and People died. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the Albania, the old Albania Ponzi scheme. Right. And we should note that uh, Lou Perlman, he went to jail or received a sentence of 25 years uh, for counting $300 million. And apparently, every million he paid back, they cut a month off his sentence. So, which seems really fair. I think so. But Perlman, three hundred million dollars sounds like a lot. It ain't. It was, and then two thousand eight came along. The big daddy, dude. This guy, Bernard Madoff, right? One of the founders of Nasdaq. Yeah, which is one reason why it worked so well because he was beyond legit. He was beyond legit. Um, although he. His, his One of the other reasons he was so successful was that he was smart. First of all, like uh, Sarah Howe, uh, he used affinity fraud. Mm-hmm. And affinity fraud is where you are bilking uh, – you're, you're using the inclusiveness of a, of a group to um, against themselves, right? Right. So he uh, used his membership in a, a uber-wealthy, very exclusive Jewish country club down in Florida mm-hmm. to prey on investors at first. Right. Um, and, you know, the affinity fraud happens a lot, like, and usually it happens with religious groups. Somebody comes in and is like, hey, I'm a Lutheran too, and I've got this great investment. Uh, Since he's a Lutheran, sure, you know, he seems upstanding, you trust him, and then that's that. Right. Uh, but Madoff very much uh, used affinity fraud, at, at least at first, and then news of his amazing returns got out. But as I was saying, the reason he was so successful is he, he didn't pull a Ponzi and say, I'll get you 50% return in 45 days, you know? Right. Uh, uh, he offered reasonable, I think 11% was the average, mm-hmm. returns believable. over the long haul. Right. That was the key. It was very believable. Well, to an extent. Have you ever looked at our um, prospectus, the T. Rowe Price prospectus? Or prospectus? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have you ever noticed, like, if you look at it, it's like one year, three years, five years, ten years, uh-huh. and, and it, it'll be up at one year, down three years, sure. down five years, up. He was offering, like, a straight 
even keel 11% return. Right. You couldn't lose, right? Mm-hmm. So that actually should have been a red flag, but it wasn't. Right. Um, and in 2001, Barron's, the financial rag, mm-hmm. they uh, published a an article on him specifically <laughs> saying, great his plan was. <laughs> saying Madoff can't be offering these returns. Mathematically speaking, oh, okay. this isn't possible, right. and no one listened. Yeah. But chief among the people who weren't listening was the SEC. Yeah, and they've been under a lot of fire lately because they did not listen, they did not investigate, even when it was kind of handed to them like, hey – Several this, times, actually. There were, going uh, on here. there were like two or three formal complaints right. uh, to them, and they never followed up. Well, one reason why, and this is even another reason why he was successful, is he was also running a legit business uh, alongside it. So he could sort of uh, defer, you know, when he needed to pay people back and things were getting tight, he could pull a little money out of his legit business right. and, and do that. And apparently he did so promptly. If somebody wanted to... Um, yeah, withdrawal. To, yeah, they, they got a check like that, no questions asked. So. Like when Kevin Bacon was like, uh, we're heading to Barbados, and I need a million dollars because I'm going to buy a hut on the beach. Right. I'm trying to hide my wife from her shame for being in the closer. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Madoff was very, very successful to the tune of, what, 20 to $50 billion. Yeah, he made off with... I know, he's got the perfect name for I it. Know. I'm he sure should have been like, wait, what's your last name? No, I'm not investing. I bet every me. headline has already used that, so it's probably stale by now. Yeah, thanks for that, Chuck. Sure. So what, what can you do, Chuck? How do you stay out of a Ponzi scheme unless you're a very savvy investor who's totally unconscionable? Well, uh, there's a few things you can look for. Um, and it also should be noted that a Ponzi scheme is pretty much a one-way street to collapse. There's yeah. really no way to pull it off in the long it's run. Unsustainable. Unless uh, I think a lot of people might start these and think, well, I can get out at a certain point, pay everyone back, and make a lot of money. Um, but yeah, it's it's not a good working model in the end. Well, apparently, the point to a Ponzi scheme is to keep it going until they die. Yeah, which is considered a big success. Yeah, because you live like a billionaire, right? And then uh, at the end, you know, you die or you know, you off yourself. Yeah. <laughs> when and the did cops you know? Your door. Speaking of that, did you know that? Um, after he was found out, Madoff was spending 160 grand a month on personal security at really? his penthouse. Wow. Yeah. Where do, where do, you, live? do you know how many in Manhattan? Yeah, you did. Do you know how many bodyguards that buys you? That's like Delta Force money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, some things you can look for. Um, the obvious, of course, is if it sounds too good to be true, it is. That's yeah. the oldest adage in the book, and it's true across the board. Uh, so if someone's making you promises. On big returns, then you should probably turn around and walk away. Right. Don't let anyone pressure you into doing this. Well, pressure, that's another point, too, is, I mean, it's usually going to be a high-pressure pitch, like you have a very limited time window, maybe for as long as the person's standing there, um, and you're made to feel like a jackass if you don't take them up on it. Um, But, yeah, yeah, pressure is definitely one one of the factors as well. And even one, like you said, that, uh, like uh, Madoff's scam, where he would not promise huge returns. That might make it a little more believable, but everything, like you said, fluctuates. Sure. So if it's a consistent, even if it's a consistent like 5% growth for years, then right. that should be a red flag right there. And also you should um, ask questions and, and demand answers as well because, I mean, if you just if you have a, a friend who has a friend that has this great investment and you cut him a check and it turns out to be a Ponzi scheme, well... TS for you. That was a stupid thing to do. Sure. Uh, you should know what your money's being invested in. You should know who's investing it. You should, and, and even if it's legitimate, you should be asking these questions. If it's through any of the major brokerages, right. find out how many fees there are. Just, just that's a good habit, no matter what. Right? Sure. 
Uh, and the other thing is, um, even if you're involved in a Ponzi scheme, even if you get sucked in, uh, you should never, it should never break you and leave you bankrupt. Right. Excellent point, Chuck. Because, I think this is probably the yeah. most important point. Well, now I say diversification sure. is a key to a good portfolio, and this is definitely true here. You should not invest all your money in one thing. You're just setting yourself up for right. for bankruptcy and collapse. Whether it's a Ponzi scheme or not. Yeah, exactly. If you do all real estate and you were just totally invested in real estate True. in 2007, you're in big trouble. I mean, even Donald Trump uh, hit the lowest of the lows at one point. We all forget. I think he's lost a lot of his old edge that he used to have. Lost. He's made some bad decisions. Yeah, like the TV show. Sure. <laughs> No one needs to see that guy. No, no. And if you uh, if you do find yourself in a Ponzi scheme and you're not the type to take the law into your own hands with like a tire iron or anything like that, no. you could always contact the SEC. I don't know that they'll do anything, and they probably won't, but it's worth a shot anyway, right? Right. Oh, and we should just as a uh, sidebar here. I know that Madoff did confess, but they are uh, there's a the SEC is still coming under fire because he's claiming that he acted alone and. Didn't have any help with this, which is really, really hard to believe. Just because sure. paperwork alone for a scheme this size would be huge, and uh, uh, some people think out there that he probably had his family involved, and then did everything he could to cover for them and take the hit. So that's right. yet to come out. Well, also, even if they weren't involved, their salary came directly from the bilking of other people. Sure. Even if they somehow were just totally unaware of it, I don't you buy know, it. it makes it kind of. Uh, I don't know. It puts it puts their own wealth in question. Right. So, yeah. So that's the Ponzi schemes. That was very good, Chuck. Thank you. Chuck, that's the last um, time I'll say that. Are we, uh, we going to talk about our spoken word album? Yes. Yeah? I think we should. And then maybe we'll talk about blogs and then listener mail? <laughs> yeah, stick around for All listener right. mail. All right. So uh, we do have a spoken word album. Our first one. And it is about the economy mm-hmm. and economics. Uh, everyone knows that we are in the Second Great Depression. And... Um, we just kind of decided to make a, a, a spoken word album about that. That's, that's such a, a an off, a slightly off kilter description. It's more like a, a guide, right? Right. Possibly a guide to the economy. That's what it's called. But opinion. it's very big, right? Like there's a lot of stuff in it, right? <laughs> yes, it's called the Stuff You Should Know Super Stuffed Guide to the Economy. Oh. And it's uh, got expert interviews. Josh and I get out of the studio. We go and. Uh, Around the world. Chicken farm? <laughs> Chicken farm. Don't spoil it. And uh, Jerry, our uh, pr- awesome producer, she did excellent sound design, and it's got more oh, bells yeah. and whistles, and it's, uh, it's definitely a, a cut above the silliness we do here each week. Yeah, yeah. And you can find it by typing uh, Super Stuffed in the search bar at iTunes. It's three ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Frankly, Chuck, and I think it's worth it. I think so. So if you want to get it, knock yourself out. Get it a couple times if you like. Right. Support us. Yeah, because it um, blows up your computer after 48 hours, So unless you keep downloading it fresh each time. Right. Not and true. And paying for it over and over again. Not true at all. All right. So uh, there was that plug. Now let's plug the blog. Yes. We've been plugging the blog now. I hope you guys aren't sick of it yet. Um, but Josh and I blog a couple of times a day. He posts once. I post once. And it's called Stuff You Should Know. You can find it on the right-hand side of our homepage at HowStuffWorks.com. Yep. And we just cherry pick uh, interesting news items and kind of like what we do here, except it may not be enough to flesh out a full show. So yeah, and a couple of times we've uh, we've posted on uh, listener suggestions, like why don't yeah. you guys do this? You Absolutely. Know? And, um, so yeah, keep keep the ideas coming. We love them. We do. It keeps us from having to do any real research. It's true. And you know what that leads us to? Listener mail time. That's right. 
Okay, Josh, this is an installment of Stuff We Should Know. Stuff I, We Should Have Known. No, it's not because sometimes it's additional things. It's oh, not okay. Things we messed All up. Right. Quit saying that. Yeah. Uh, this one is from Sarah, and Sarah wrote in um, about the word theory versus hypotheses. Sarah is a teacher. And we say all the time, someone's theory, someone's theory. And she says we've been misusing it. She says, in the Thinking Cap podcast, you repeated, uh, you repeatedly referenced theories about savantism and left hemisphere damage. And scientifically speaking, these are not theories, they're hypotheses. So her basic point is that a theory is not just an educated guess. It's uh, something that a lot of detail and research has gone into to get to the point where you can call it a theory, like the theory of evolution, which is often dismissed as, oh, it's just a theory. But a theory has actually got a lot to it. So uh, Sarah wanted us to set the record straight, so we did that. Uh, another little minor correction here. Josh said at one point we were the only country that uses uh, the imperial system. I thought we got this out of the way with the uh, dead bodies on Everest podcast. We did not officially. Uh, U.S., Burma, Liberia, and Myanmar? Myanmar and Burma are the same place. Oh, okay. Well, there you have it. Ever since the junta, it's now Myanmar. Look at you. Yeah. So, uh, Rich from Omaha, Joshua from Euclid, Wisconsin, Stefan from Newark, Delaware, and Jean or Jean. Jean? Oh, they all wrote in and told us that. And I have one more, and I like this one. Stephanie wrote in and told us that uh, on our Aphrodisiacs podcast, we we're talking about uh, phallic symbol and fallacies, and we were talking about an oyster. Apparently, there is a word for something that resembles the female genitalia. Yeah, I was interested to hear this because we kept saying female genitalia, and I wish that she had written in before then. And we knew that phallus only represented the male genitalia, but I did not realize there was one for females. Lay it on us, Chuck. Yannick, Y-O-N-I-C. And she said Yannick, or Yanni is Sanskrit for the word womb, vulva in place of origin. And she said she just wanted to tell us this because for one of the first times in her life, she actually knew something. Yannick. So thank you, Stephanie, for that. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. Yannick. Getting it. I'm processing it right now. So Yannick Noah, remember the famous tennis player? Yeah. His I knew that there was, was so many actually there, yeah. a reference to female genitalia. Odd. I wonder if he knows that. I'm sure he's heard it at the time or two. Surely by now. So if you want to point out that there are other words Chuck and I are unfamiliar with, uh, basically let me know that I shouldn't call my crackpot theories theories, but hypotheses instead, or just say hi. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?